0: Some may know the story behind the one hymn that we sang. It is well with my soul. The writer had himself traveled across the Atlantic, and I think this is back in the late 1800s, but I'm not sure. And was waiting for his wife and children to follow on another ship at a later point, and the ship encountered a storm and sank. The passengers that were saved were asked to give the most limited telegraph they could possibly come up with because so many needed to get news to waiting family. And so the writer of the hymn His wife survived. All his children were lost. She sent a two-word telegraph. Saved alone. That let him know, of course, she'd survived, but she was the only one. And out of that experience, just days after it, while still waiting for his wife, he wrote that hymn. So when we see the words, when sorrow like sea billows roll, he knew what that meant. Yet in spite of it, it's well with my soul. That's heart religion that Christ gives us to keep us anchored, no matter what. Scripture that I want to look at today, and I'm trying to keep it short, Um, I'll just try to give you some background here rather than read a lot of Scripture. In the 26th chapter of Acts, we have Paul appearing before a Roman governor over all of Palestine and surrounding areas. And his name is Festus. Prior to Festus being appointed by the emperor, the previous proconsul, they call them, from Rome assigned to the Jewish nation and some of the surrounding territory. His name was Felix. Now the Jews had caught Paul in the temple, falsely accused him of bringing Gentiles into the temple, which would defile it. And they were holding him in Jerusalem. Forty of the Jews that had helped arrest him, took an oath that they would not eat or drink until they'd killed Paul. Um, Hearing that, the Roman governor, military um, governor in Jerusalem, knew that this prisoner, who he had now found out was a Roman citizen, had to be protected. So he arranged to send him down to Caesarea, Philippi, the Mediterranean coast, to Felix. Felix was the ranking ruler among all the rulers, the layers of rulers that were over that part of the world. Well, Felix heard Paul, it says, gladly, listened to him a lot, and one particular time when Paul, it says, was reasoning, speaking to Felix about righteousness and Self-denial and avoidance of sin and judgment to come, Felix, it said, became frightened and trembled. And he said to Paul, stop. And he uttered these words, some more convenient season, I'll call on you. He wanted to hear truth only in his time, when I'm ready for it, not when God's ready for it. Well, Felix kept calling Paul to come before him and talk to him, but basically the scripture says that Felix just wanted Paul to give him a bribe. He wanted Paul to pay him, and so that's why he called him often, his motive ceased to be any interest in God, it was getting a bribe. So when Felix is reassigned and the emperor in Rome assigns a new proconsul, Felix, rather than, and I couldn't get off in the weeds here and I'll do my best not to, even today, governors and presidents in our government have the freedom, especially as they leave office, to pardon people. It's ancient. The Roman governors had that power. So Felix had the ability to let Paul go, and he knew he he was guilty of nothing. But so it says in Scripture, two chapters earlier, to make the Jews happy, he left Paul in prison. So Festus, this new Roman governor, shows up. He takes stock of things. He takes him only several days. He goes up to Jerusalem, which is the hotbed of trouble. And this was a bad assignment for any Roman governor. You didn't want to be sent to Palestine. Because you're dealing with the Jews, who were constantly in some sort of rebellion, planning one, just getting over one, or whatever. So... Festus does his best to get caught up quick and the first thing when he visits Jerusalem they tell him hey there's a guy down there that needs to be executed. His name's Paul. And he's a horrible person and they told all kinds of stuff that he was doing. He's trying to turn the Jews against Rome and so forth. And so Festus says okay as soon as I go back to Caesarea and kind of get settled in you guys come down we'll Here, what the deal is with this Paul. And so the day comes just a few weeks later in the 26th chapter where that meeting takes place. I can't read all of it, but um, Festus kind of introduces Paul and he has a guest there. Now we have another guy, Agrippa. Agrippa was a king over the Galilee area, part of northern Israel, but he was under the Roman governor, which in this case now this new guy is Festus. And so Agrippa and Bernice, it says, come with great pomp into the courtroom of Festus. Now just a little side deal here. This Agrippa is the great no the grandson of herod who was governor over israel when christ was born he's the one that killed all the babies in bethlehem trying to get to jesus wonderful fellow and he had he did a good job raising his son Herod, I think it was called, some called him the lesser, and now his grandson. Because Agrippa and Bernice come in. Who's Bernice? His wife. No. It's his sister. Who was his wife? So, this is a weird outfit. To Agrippa, then, and Festus, Paul makes his case. Paul does here what he does in a lot of cases, where he's just preaching the gospel. And it's a lesson to us. Paul just gave his testimony. They said, what do you have to say for yourself? Are you guilty of all the stuff they say? And Paul merely said, listen, I used to persecute the people that believe in this Christ And I even gave my vote against them to be executed. And I did everything I could to destroy this new religion, followers of Jesus Christ. And he tells about how he's on the road to Damascus. And Jesus appeared to him, struck him blind, spoke to him, said, why are you persecuting me? We know that story, how he then goes into Damascus. In three days, he's blind. And Ananias is sent by the Lord to baptize him. The scales fell off of his eyes, and the Lord spoke to him and said, I'm calling you as a minister to the Gentiles, and you're going to suffer a lot for my name's sake. Well, he tells Festus and Agrippa all this. And in the middle of this, When he's talking about Jesus rising from the dead, Festus cries out to him. And we'll get to this as we start with verse 19. He's given, Paul is given the authority to speak to Agrippa. Therefore, King Agrippa After the Lord appeared to me, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, and then in Jerusalem, and through all the region of Judea, then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying... "...no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ, the Messiah, would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles." Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus, with a loud voice, interrupts here, "...Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad." But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, now he's referring to Agrippa, the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these these things escapes his attention, since this thing, Christ, the crucifixion, the resurrection, was not done in a corner. Agrippa professed Judaism. So, Paul says, King Agrippa, 27, Do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Paul's being very complimentary there. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today, might become both almost And altogether, such as I am, a thorough Christian, except for these chains. We'll end our reading there. The haunting statement that Agrippa makes here. Almost, you persuade me. Now I'm aware that there are some other translations that try, feel that this should be put in the Sense of a sarcastic remark. Oh yeah, you're making you're, you've talked me into being be a Christian. The the better and more ancient scholars all agree that it far more leans toward a sincere statement from Agrippa. You've almost convinced me to be a Christian. Almost, almost, I'm convinced to be a Christian. Horrible words, really. Basically, he's saying, if you would have met my terms, I want to be a Christian, but I want to be one on my terms. And what you're saying, I'm almost convinced, but but I'm not. There's no record that Agrippa ever, ever finally found his way to being altogether a Christian. Now, this brings up really two things. It mentions, of course, the word Christian, which was a name early given to followers of Jesus. And it also brings up the religion, if you want to call it that, which it is, but the religion among hundreds and hundreds of Christianity. So the first thing we want to look at when he says, you almost persuade me to be a Christian, is Christianity itself. What is, what sets Christianity apart from every other religion? There are hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of religions in this world. There's one, and only one, that's true. What sets Christianity apart from every other religion? C.S. Lewis, many of us have read his books and know of him, was at some point asked that question. What sets Christianity apart? And ask him to say it in one word. He thought for a minute and then just said, Grace. Grace. Which is undeserved mercy and favor and kindness from God. It is elaborate giving to a rebellious race an initiating of trying to win this lost, rebellious race back to God, and an empowerment that God gives to this rebellious race, enabling them to recognize His voice, to reasonably understand it, and to respond to it, so that because of grace which provides everything we need to turn back to God and be won back from our rebellion. Because God's given us all we need, provided us the ability to choose to respond to him, therefore, the responsibility rests on us, whether we will be a Christian altogether or be almost... A Christian or not at all. We then bear the responsibility because of all God's given to us to enlighten us on what being a Christian is and to give us the ability to respond. There are three things then that I want to look at about <clears throat> Christianity itself and then three things that Agrippa <laughs> had to consider, and we do, about being a Christian. What kind of life must we live as a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? First, Christianity. Three things set it apart. One is grace. Grace, <clears throat> theologically defined, unmerited favor. The god one of the best, simple, little definitions. By our actions, God ought to be against us, but He's for us. That's grace. We don't deserve it. But God shines His face on us. He loves us. He seeks us out. He's been, he has been dogging our paths as a race Since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve used the power to choose that He gave them to disobey the most basic commandment don't eat of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Leave that alone. You have thousands of other ones, just leave that one alone. And they didn't. What happened? God came to them. He sought them out. He initiated it. None of us ever, ever, ever seek God or even have a thought about God that He doesn't initiate. We really never seek God until He first seeks us, calls, draws, convicts, reveals our heart, Reveals to him his displeasure with us. But he also reveals his love to us. His concern for us. And we just sang this morning about how great God's love is for us that he shed his blood for us. Paul almost of course, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But when he was writing, he almost runs out of words. He said, you might, you might, we might find somebody that would die for a, in the place of a good man. But who would die for rebels? People who are shaking their fist in the face of the one who's dying for them. Who does that? God. Grace. God's flood of mercy and grace is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Briefly, every other religion beside Christianity is a human creation. And here's where non-Christian religions come from. We know just enough about God through our conscience His, the Holy Spirit's faithfulness to talk to us. We have that innate voice that still small voice that confronts me with shoulds and should-nots, oughts and shouldn'ts. And we know it. We sense it. It makes us uncomfortable. Rather than seek then or respond to the drawing of this God who makes us uncomfortable because of what we're doing, we invent our own gods. And our own gods, what a surprise, behave like we do. So rather than looking at us as being made in the image and likeness of God from which we fell, human religions remake God in our image. So the gods, and we we know this, the gods of the Romans and the Greeks, the hundreds of gods that they had, were involved in every kind of licentious, evil, wicked, depraved behavior that humans do. I can be comfortable with that kind of a god. He never bothers me. The gods, Bacchus, the god of wine... And parties and all of the fertility gods worshipped with temple prostitutes. That doesn't bother my conscience. Still God does. The God. But we create gods that reflect us. Because we don't like the one that reflects on us and what we're doing really a thought struck me when I was in college and I was I majored in philosophy which I don't know if that's good or bad but at any rate um, you had to read all of these different philosophers going clear back to the early Greeks and whoever else and every single one comes along thinking they're correcting the one that went before them And then somebody's correcting them, and then somebody's correcting them. And all of these different inventions, all of them have to some degree some kind of a God. Either a God that's really, really close to being God, Christian God, or way down here where they're even subject to us. But no matter what it is, this thought struck me. The whole, the whole stream of human reasoning dealing with God, trying to grapple with the innate sense. There's a God. There's a supreme being somewhere. But we do our best to diminish Him. And here's the one thread that goes through every single Philosophy, false religion, it's this. I allow a God, if I have a God. I allow a God that may be, you know, down here at puny level. I allow a God that may be pretty strong, but never sovereign. So I don't have to give account. Every single creation of humans, of religion, has a God in it to whom I, I don't have to give final account when the books are opened and everything I've thought, said, did is written there. We diminish whatever image we have of God so I don't have to answer to him. That sets Christianity apart. Yes, I'm aware that the false religions always are trying to placate the gods. They're always scared of them because they're going to do something to them. So they throw a virgin in the volcano once a year. So maybe the crops grow. Or a thousand different rituals that we go through so the gods won't be mad at us and won't kill us with the plague, won't cause the crops to die, or whatever. We never come up with, interestingly as humans, with a a loving, merciful, forgiving, gracious, faithful, truthful God. Why? Again, because they're inventions of our own hearts, and our own hearts are dark. So that's what we create. Grace, mercy, faithfulness sets Christianity apart. Second, godliness. The adherence to Christianity, the believers, are known by being thoroughly, truly, actually transformed morally and spiritually. The wicked... Become righteous. The town drunk gets saved. I think it was Abraham Lincoln that said if a man gets religion, his kids and his dog will know it. Your behavior changes, you're different. Once I was lost, now I'm found. Once I was blind, but now I see. One of the things that a very early Roman historian commented on about the incredible rise of Christianity in the Mediterranean basin, the Roman Empire, trying to pin down why is this religion taken us by storm this these symptoms or these characteristics were mentioned they wouldn't use the word but anointed preaching the the speaking of the message was different and it's like jesus when Jesus was speaking in the temple, the high priest, he's God, for goodness sakes. They sent the temple guard to go get him taking captive and shut this man up. Well, these poor deluded souls come back empty-handed. And they say, well, we sent you to get him. Why didn't you? They answered this. No man speaks like this man. The, not only the Son of God, but the Christians, ordained preachers or not, when speaking the truth of God, it's pungent. It penetrates our hearts. No man speaks like this. The Word of God does that. It, it punctures the facade And it reveals our hearts. Second thing was the love that the disciples have for one another. And for even their enemies. The third characteristic that this historian noted was the power of transformed lives. They could see. They probably could never explain it. They couldn't understand it. But they couldn't deny. This guy, who used to be the town jerk, is different. And instinctively, they knew humans can't do that. Self-reform can't go that far. Oh, we can clean up on the outside for a while. I was, a, I was just foul mouthed, terrible. And I'm in a preacher's home. Grew up in a preacher's home. Had devotions with the family every day. You had to. And my dad, who didn't mind cramming religion down your throat, I'm glad he did. He let me know and he let all of us know God's first period. Now, I was just wicked as can be and just cussed like a sailor. But I didn't at home. You can, shoot, you can you'd clamp it off. I thought it. I said it, I guess, in my heart. No, I didn't, I didn't. I didn't carry on around home. I could clean up. But only for a short time. It never lasted. I almost had to get out of the house to let the pressure valve off. But on a Friday morning, kneeling by my bed, in my bedroom, God changed my heart. I didn't talk like that anymore. He left. Because Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What got changed? My linguistic patterns? No. My heart, which is the spring of this, got changed. That you cannot deny. And that is what accompanies Christianity. The undeniable can't squelch it, change lives. Third thing that sets apart Christianity. Grace, godliness truly changes us. Glory. Only only Christianity is a religion where the one we follow, the one we believe in, the one we love, the one we trust with all of our hearts, promised us, I'm going to return to this earth and I'm going to bring every last one of you who love me, serve me, trust me, to a place I've prepared for you and you'll be with me forever. And it will be a place such that, as the Scripture says, it's never been thought, it's never been seen, it's never been heard, and it's never even been imagined what God has created for us in heaven. No other religion has anything like that. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other one. That's what Paul was laying out before Agrippa. And that's what Agrippa, I believe in some burst of sincerity, admitted what a guy one time told me on a plane years and years ago. was can't even remember where we were going. But I was sitting next to a guy who grew up in Eugene, where I grew up. And <clears throat> this was long enough ago that, you know, still the tie-dyed shirt and the ratty hair and, you know, the whole peace thing hanging around his neck. And, but I could talk to him because I'd grown up in that place. And he admitted to me, he said, I don't know a lot, haven't been in church much, heard a few people talk about, you know, became Christians, friends. But he said this, there's something attractive about Jesus. Now where would he get that? From God. Jesus talks to us, communicates with us, and we have an innate sense that we really can't get rid of. God's put it in our hearts. He has put, the scripture says, eternity in our hearts. We instinctively recognize there's something up here bigger than us. And we live in that. And I think Agrippa recognized there's something attractive here. This Paul, who Festus thinks is nuts, and probably a lot of other people, there's something about what he's telling me that draws me. The sad thing is that he wouldn't take it. Very briefly, then, there's three things about being a Christian, an adherent to Christianity. One is denial. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, was the first thing he said, you must deny yourself. Agrippa wouldn't do that. Agrippa still had his categories and Christianity, while being attractive to him, didn't push all the right buttons. It involved self-denial, quitting some stuff. And I'm thinking Agrippa had a pretty good list of stuff to quit. It was too high a cost to him. Some of it he could see, but boy, there's a few things I I, I don't want to let go. Being a Christian is a life of self-denial. But, lest that come across as Grudging, a dreary, you can't have any fun. Listen, what has walking against God ever brought any of us? Peace, joy, God's presence, smile of His favor upon us? No, no, never. The devil always overpromises and he can never deliver. God knows how to deliver more than we ever imagined. Denial. Second, determination. That is, to walk upstream and to keep doing it. Hebrew says, endure to the end. Through trial, tribulation, ridicule, maybe loss of friends, people turn away from us. But Jesus said, I will never leave your side. I'll never go anywhere. I won't leave you or forsake you. I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. So we can determine, I'm going to go through with God. God. Finally, dependence. A Christian is someone that is utterly, has utterly divested him or herself of our rights. We've died to us, to me, my agenda, ambitions, all of that. Lord, you have me, you do with me whatever you Choose. I trust you that much that you know best, you're wise, you have my best eternal interests in heart. Thy will be done. My agenda is out of the way. You do with me what you want. And the dependence then of utter faith. Lord, I believe you. Not head knowledge but it's down in here for all of the unknowns. Really, our lives are filled with unknowns. And Jesus said, you don't even know what one day is going to bring forth. You have no idea what may happen to you today. Trust me. Even if I have you go through fire and water, as the scripture says, I'll bring you out into a wealthy place, spacious place. I'll go through it with you. We go into the furnace like the three Hebrew children. There's a fourth. He's in there too. That's what Agrippa passed up may we not do that let's bow our heads for a moment of just quietness want us to let the lord just search our hearts are we almost christians or altogether christians Gonna have our lay leader, Scott Matheny, dismiss us with prayer.
1: While we're praying, good and gracious God. Lord, first I pray all is well with our souls. I pray we are not almost Christians. We have given our heart fully to you. Lord, I know that all of us are at different walks in our lives, and I pray that all of us give our heart fully to you. You have given us all we need. It is up to us to respond to you. You've given us the undeserving grace. You've given us the Holy Spirit, and we have that spirit here with us today every day helping us how great your love for us is lord as i pray as we walk out these doors that we respond to you lord we don't want to be like king agrippa we don't want to hang on to things we don't have our own agenda we want to do what you have planned for us so as we go on with our week let your light shine through us in all that we do, everything, not just today, but throughout the week. Lord, thank you for your grace, your godliness, and your glory that Pastor Dan spoke of. Lord, thank you for Pastor Dan and, 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 and the word that comes through him. We're a church that is so blessed, and I thank you for each one of these that are here today. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.